You're listening to Her Body on Body IOFM, the women's source for optimal health and lifelong performance, with your host, Alex Navarro. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Her Body brought to you by Body IOFM. I'm your host, Alex Navarro. And we have a special, special guest on the show today, Kiefer himself. Welcome. Hello. I, uh, after listening to your show, or Jim's show, with you on, I really wanted a chance to talk to you, ask you a few more questions, more on topics that weren't fully covered in the episodes that you did with Jim. I know that you touched a lot on health and the software, sort of the new projects that you're working on. I also love that you mentioned the coaches, uh, you know, because I'm one of them and it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, but it's true. A lot of people don't or, or forget that we're there, um, that we're here to help them. So I'm glad that you guys touched on, on all of that as well. Yeah, I think the coaches are an incredibly important part of the entire process because now that I don't work with as many people, you know, they're the ones who are fine tuning things now for athletes and getting all the experience, which will help immensely when the, you know, the software won't be perfect, Mm -hmm. but the coaches will make it that way. So that's very important. Thanks. You guys are very important. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I really enjoy it a lot. And, and that's one of the, again, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the show today and sort of pick your brain on a couple of the things that weren't fully touched upon in the last few episodes that you were on. And that's more specific to athletes and performance. Right. And I assume probably women too. Well, yes. Well, yeah, we're just a different, I mean, you touched, you mentioned it very briefly when you talked about CrossFit and that sort of the difference in, mm-hmm. in women, women, men and women and how we handle that type of activity. Right. Um, so that's kind of what triggered that. I wanted a little bit more when you mentioned it. So, because uh, I think that, you know, we do, while a lot of what this show is about specifically is obviously women, um, we do talk a lot about just general health and, and wellness, for lack of a better word. Yeah. But we have a very large performance following. Right. And men and women. I think in the industry, there's this big idea, or and you can see it. I don't know if it's anybody's really internalized this idea, but you can see a very stark delineation between people who focus on health and people who focus on performance. And I think that's a big limiting factor because a lot of the stuff that I learned about to move in the direction of this full theory of what it takes to be healthy and how we get sick started with my started with clues that came up from the performance side of things. And then information that allowed me to that I gained in looking at that new model of health applies directly to athletes too. And it, and it, it appears it's a totally different way, but it's actually the exact same system, but you're just taking it in a different direction. So, you know, those two sides of the coin can't really be separated anymore. And I think that's why there's been such a hard time, especially with women and Mm -hmm. just in general, these there, there's so many weird ideas because you don't really have, that many people who are versed not only with the research on both sides of things but also the experience with themselves and with other people on both sides of the coin 
Right. You know, and that's been hugely helpful for me. I've been able to work with athletes and people who just want to get healthy and that really working with both of those populations helped inform the information that will help the cro- help crosswise. So which I think is important because we've talked about this on on past episodes of her body, but this is also just a conversation that that you and I have had in regards to athletes, like professional athletes, in mm. how there are so many studies that have been done on athletes and how they ate, performed, sort of their their full investment toward towards that specific sport, but then the aftermath of when they stopped the sport and the potential, let's say, damage for lack of a better word, that they caused doing that activity. Right. And the rate of sickness right. in those athletes in their later years. Yeah, that's actually a concern for it. It wasn't so much, but it's becoming more of a concern for a lot of those sports institutions uh, like the NFL or NBA because they they are they essentially are covering these athletes after they retire as well. There's there's an insurance program there essentially yeah which is fantastic but you know if you have these athletes who you're spending massive amounts of money on when they are athletes and then all of a sudden you have to spend just as much when they're not athletes you start getting into a system that's not really viable so they're starting to become more concerned with those things and you know i think that leads perfectly into at paleo fx a few years ago i can't remember one of the top CrossFit coaches, can't even remember his name now, I was on stage with him, and he made the statement which I used to agree with was that to be a high-performance athlete at the levels, at the professional level, so Olympics, uh, professional sports in the U.S., that you had to make yourself sick, that there was no other option. And, And he was talking, you know, his point of reference was CrossFit, which... If you are doing CrossFit, you probably are going to make yourself sick to a certain degree. But I don't agree with that statement anymore. I think that statement comes out of a lot of ignorance. There's actually a way to have to get athletes to perform better and to actually get healthy in the process. And then when they're done, they're a clean slate. They don't have to worry about getting getting sick. Um, we'll have to excuse. Cooper's decided he wants his voice heard on the show today. So <laughs> if you hear some squeaking, that's him chiming in. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that, that A, we've gone in that direction, that it is possible to do both. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we've had like, we had Eva on the show and she talked about her, you know, all the training that she did when she was doing the professional skiing, when she was in the Olympics and sort of the aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to know, especially, you know, if we're talking about kids and we want to get them into sports and what that could mean is we're not just looking at, you know, fueling them to be good at the sport now with no consideration of, you know, the years after that. Right. But really setting them up for success all the way through and that it is possible. Yeah. And she grew up, unfortunately, we're still... If if we're in the dark ages of nutrition now for health and performance, she grew up in the Stone Age. Um, not that she's that much older or anything. It's just, you know, we've come a massive, uh, a massive way in the last 20, 30 years, which unfortunately she was right at the cusp of that. Mm-hmm. So she didn't get to benefit. 
And, you know, like I said, we're still in the Dark Ages, but now if, you know, one of the, the I always call it a rabbit hole, but the, the research that I've been able to pull together and the insights I've had, for the first time, I actually have models that can tell us things like what is the maximum amount of workload that you can handle while sustaining maximum muscle growth and in maximum muscle growth also would include I include in there like tendon health and things like that so you can actually now calculate the level at which you can train to make sure you get maximum benefit without maximum damage and that's I won't say it's trivial it you know the information the the great thing is obviously the information is out there to make those calculations and when you have that model it's actually the first time I can the the model that I have can actually predict also not only did, are you training too hard which is going to make you lose muscle mass uh, it'll it can take that into account for a rebound effect most bodybuilders mm-hmm. and other athletes know if they take like a month off they actually gain muscle and strength and they feel amazing mm-hmm. and there's a very specific mechanism that causes that to happen and you can model that and you can have that in I have that in my system. And then on top of it, I can also model the interference hypothesis, which still a lot of people are like, okay, well, it exists. It doesn't exist. You can, you know, we know it exists. So you can't find endurance trainers or people who train for marathons that are, can also put on massive amounts of muscle. And there's a very specific reason for that. And I can actually model that. I can take studies where they look for the interference hypothesis and predict Mm -hmm. the results of those studies. So the model's really robust in that way. And if you put all that together, you can start to produce athletes who just don't get injured, which was Eva's problem. They were pushing her too hard, so they pushed her into a phase where her body couldn't build the protein in a fashion that would keep her from getting injured, even her tendons. And then also because of dietary considerations, there's a lot of damage going on, and the system just starts to break down. You can literally cause athletes even professional athletes to ride the cusp of unlimited health and unlimited athletic performance with absolutely no downside i mean that in itself is revolutionary seriously you know there there will that's what i you know people have been complaining this is taking so long but i've really discovered a lot of new things that i didn't even think about several years ago when it seems like the more that you dig, just like you said, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole. Like you, you dig in one thing and you might fall, stumble upon something else that's like, oh, a little more aha moments. And, and again, kind of putting more pieces. The puzzle's bigger than you thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. I, and I think, so the, the first book will come out, will be heavily focused on health as, you know, that was clear. And uh, another spoiler alert, Alex has gone through pretty much all the material Mm-hmm. in the first book so she knows how all that works but we it didn't. is very robust it's uh <laughs> it was a lot to take in yeah she <laughs> was by the end of our conversation she was terrified to eat carbohydrates ever again she goes can i can i eat carbs still i'm like yes yeah, it's totally fine um it's all about when and where yeah you just have mind. to have to eat them in the right way um but on the the performance side you know, it, it, I, I think the performance book, this, the second book, which will be more performance-oriented, uh, so for those of you looking for CBL updates, that'll, that'll be in the second book, which 
I'm trying to make sure streamlined and comes out pretty quickly, but I think it's going to open up a new field of study that I want to call protein dynamics because that really, it, it affects general health and it affects aging and it affects appearance. But then when you move into the athletic world, it defines everything. Uh, and it was funny, I got started on this because there was a question or I saw something on Reddit of all places where somebody asked how many calories of energy does it like how many calories does it take to add one pound of muscle and they said they they didn't care about you know they it wasn't how much energy they have to expend in the gym or you know any of that stuff they want to know exactly if you added one pound of muscle how many extra calories it would take above working out in the gym and things like that Mm -hmm. and all the answers and i have no idea where these answers came from but there's like ten thousand extra calories (laughs) <laughs> so one pound of muscle and and a lot of people on on reddit were like well yeah that makes sense you know because muscle seems you know it's a complex tissue right, it must right. take a lot of energy to assemble all those molecules and build a pound mm-hmm. of muscle but you know i had no idea where that answer came from so i actually started to put together all the research to get an answer to that which turned out to be a six-month question to answer oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it's a very, very complex question. And that's, and that's when I came up with all these models that predict, because I, I needed models that predicted the results of like every training study I could find, basically, where the participants added muscle. And at the end of it, so I did the calculation. So guess how many, ex- if you're not counting how many calories you spend at the gym or whatever, just the amount of calories necessary to assemble one pound of muscle you want to guess well i feel like it's going to be nothing or, or a very very small amount 80 total calories let's say definitely not ten thousand. <laughs> no 80 calories you only need an excess of 80 calories wow so in other words if you're training and you're meeting your nutritional needs for that training i mean it's not hard to gain a pound of muscle which which makes sense because when i first started carbonate mm. you know again i was using it for competition prep and within that first year, and I was, you know, I was eating maintenance calories. I wasn't in a in a surplus by any means. I definitely right. wasn't in a deficit, but doing a, a pretty standard once a week carbonate. Mm-hmm. My goal was still aesthetics. It was still to like, you know, if I could get a little bit leaner, great. But I put on like seven pounds of muscle. Yeah. It- and I didn't know because I still like could wear all the same clothes. Like I looked, I looked, you know, I looked good, but I didn't. Nothing was fitting in a way that made me think I put on weight mm-hmm. by any means. And the only reason that I found, realized it had been seven pounds, which happened in about six, seven months. Yeah. And uh, it was when a client said like, oh, you look a little little more ripped. How much do you weigh? And I was like, I have no idea. So I happened to get on the scale and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's And Carbonite wasn't designed to put on. No, right. It's muscle at all. It's not. And, you know, the Carbonite essentially, it just. It limits the rate in some instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, women actually have a little bit more of an advantage when they first start carbonite to, to put on muscle mass. Which is a great thing to mention for those who are <laughs> just getting on the scale right? as a, as a, a gauge for their progress. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it's, it's nice to have this answer for, A, it explains what you experience, which helped you mm-hmm. out. And again, this, this 80 calories is just excess energy. So it's not amount, you, you do need the equivalent of, amount of protein for the building blocks right i didn't want to right go to that. but it only takes 80 calories to assemble those wow. proteins so if you have a high protein diet 
you can gain that weight pretty fast, which carbonite yeah. naturally is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, now that we can answer this question, everybody's, everybody says, even though there's really well-controlled studies and they did the, the body mass assessments with DEXA or, you know, underwater weighing, they've clearly shown that you can gain muscle tissue while you lose body fat. And a lot of people are, like to say that's impossible. That's just right. impossible because it takes too many calories. Well, it only takes 80 calories. That's it. Uh, the only thing that matters beyond that is that you're getting enough protein. So I, I thought that was really interesting that that came out of a model that accurately predicted every study I could find for muscle gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, 80 calories, it's, it's not much. It's, it's like a bite. Right. Well, I take large bites, so <laughs> right. for me, it's a bite. I know you do. You used to <laughs> out-eat me at dinner. I just still can't comprehend that. <laughs> I put down, like, some roasted chickens, like, no problem. It's, it's Not ridiculous. on purpose. It just, I just kept eating because <laughs> I was hungry. Um, <laughs> it's just interesting that, I mean, all of this is interesting, but what I like to always kind of come back to is, is people don't understand what's involved in gathering the data and... You know, it's not just one study that you're going to read that you can go find and then you have an answer that's going to make sense. Right. It's, you know, your one question that you had led to six months of doing research. And me knowing you and how you go about things, you know, you're meticulous about it. You're not going to say anything that you don't feel is 100% backed or that you don't feel confident in. And, I mean, that's why it's really hard, obviously. This is the first time he's been on the show I've had the show for like a year and a half now, and it's taken me this long to get him on the show because he doesn't necessarily like to just answer questions. He wants to feel confident in what he's talking about, and, and the information may change. You might read one study, and you, you've gotten to one conclusion, and then you, this other study shows up, and you're like, oh, well, that yeah. changes everything. Well, luckily at this point, uh, that won't ever happen again. Okay. I Well, I just... <laughs> For what I know now, it is – I'm positive it's correct. There will be questions I don't know the answer to. Which is true. But, and then what's great is he always says he doesn't know. Right. And <laughs> that's one reason, like you said, I don't like to just answer a lot of questions because I want to make sure people understand. You know, answering questions is really easy. You could ask me some off-the-cuff stuff and I could give you But they're you also really answers. loaded questions, which right. makes it hard. It's not – there's no one answer to the question. Right. And that's – you know, the understanding allows people to then take control of their own lives instead of constantly relying on other people or relying on the latest news feed. And I would really enjoy a world where people didn't need me, to be honest. And that's my goal is to make myself obsolete. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the goal here. That should be the goal of every fitness professional, doctor, you know. They should be working to eliminate their job. Agreed. I feel that way too. And if I have a client that's with me for a long time, I'm not doing yeah. something right. Yeah, and, and, and that that's really, that's my goal. And I think this is, for the first time, I feel like I'm at the cusp of that goal, you know, where I, I will make myself obsolete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which well, we'll sounds have weird, but. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have this awesome software uh, left behind <laughs> right, to well, utilize. And, and I mean, what's exciting about it for me, and again, I've gone through the initial process to kind of get started and, and seen 
the 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 quality and and robustness of information that's required from each person to kind of get started on it, which is a whole other thing because, and, and then the the continuous data collection that can come from that, right over the years. So it's just gonna get better and better and better. Yeah, this is a system that can literally take on a life of its own, which is cool in a lot of different ways. I'm actually, you know, some of the things I had to do were programs that wrote new pieces of software. Oh, wow. Yeah, because <laughs> there's just some things I, you know, I can't mine enough data and I can't go through enough things. But you can write software that can then write a new piece of software. And that's, you know, that I had to do that in certain certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but luckily those weren't, I can take pride in the main components because I had to do mm-hmm. the, the nastiness for those. Yeah. Which I'm excited about just as a coach being able to utilize for clients as well. I mean, obviously, I want them to be able to do it on their own, and this system does allow that to happen. Um, But to also watch, you know, I'm thinking specifically for, like, competition prep ladies um, Mm -hmm. who want to get on stage. So, you know, while performance isn't necessarily the goal, it's to look good, but they're obviously doing work in the gym or in whatever activity that Mm -hmm. they're doing so that can help them achieve that aesthetic goal. But a huge challenge that I come across is that they're all so different. They all have different activity levels. I have a couple of clients who are, you know, class instructors. So it's not only am I taking into consideration the training that I would recommend for them, but also what their their lifestyle entails. And that's why, you know, it takes me forever to put together a plan for a client because I'm meticulous about it. And it, no, there's no cookie cutter. I can't – I don't, don't right. even know how to do that um, because I wouldn't feel – write about it by any means but also i want them to get the best success as soon as possible in the process and this is going to help that process so much and i'm excited just to see the the differences yeah in the individuals well it can do some pretty interesting things that you can't really do otherwise and that's actually tell somebody exactly how long they should be working out and exactly what i always call it power level but intensity level I think is what people most most often think of because you think of most most uh, most contest prep we'll just use contest prep and uh, this the software actually handles that just fine it handles pretty much anything you want to do whether you're trying to get healthy and lose body fat in a healthy way or you're trying to get on stage or you're trying to be you know whatever whatever type of athlete um, it can model all of that um, but with stage prep, especially, you know, as most programs, people's activity levels go up and up and up as they get closer and closer to the show day. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the thing to come out of these models and that I experience with several clients, and I know Alex has too, is that as the show approached, you actually really decrease people's exercise load. I mean, you massive decreases. Mm-hmm. It it almost doesn't make sense, and they keep getting leaner and leaner. Mm-hmm. And the the models actually explain why that happens. And so since that explanation exists in the research and in the models, the system can actually tell you how long and how much you should be working out for each of your goals, whether your goal is to get on stage or trying to add muscle while lose fat at the same time or whether you're trying to get healthy so your doctor doesn't tell you to keep losing weight, <laughs> you know, whatever going to be very cool yeah no i'm pretty excited about it i really i really liked what you said earlier about athletes and injuries and sort of being able to better predict you know when they should rest 
mm-hmm. um, because I mean, in any sport, not it's not so much competition prep because again, we're doing minimal work already, and their goal isn't to do cool stuff. It's just to, to kind of stand there and look really good. Right. Um, although I did experience that a little bit when I did fitness because I did have to have that performance component yeah and i did do a lot of skills or attempt a lot of skills that prior to carp night i had a lot of injuries i mean there were skills i ultimately had to take out of my routine because i just kept hurting myself but i was also way over exercising in every means possible um and probably not eating enough and eating way too many carbs and not nearly enough fat so different scenario Mm -hmm. but i do remember I think it was the second show I ever did f- using Carb Night where I was still doing fitness and I had never had such an awesome performance at the show. Because normally right. the day of the show, like you're depleted, you're tired, you're thirsty. <laughs> like all you want to do is have, have a snack and drink some water. The last thing you want to do is go flip around and look like you're having a really good time doing it. And... I had experimented with all sorts of different things to eat or drink right before I did the performance so that I would kind of have that energy. Mm-hmm. And that second show I did using Carb Night, I didn't use anything before. Use anything. Right. I mean, yeah. I ate like crackers or something. But I didn't for using Carb Night at all. I yeah. just felt good all the time. And the next day after the show, I did a photo shoot where I was like deadlifting an obscene yeah. amount of weight, no problem. And in any other scenario... I would have, well, I wouldn't have even attempted it because I probably would have hurt myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, again, that relates to this concept of protein dynamics. Uh, it's critical to everything, and carbohydrates actually and insulin have a massive effect on those protein dynamics, and you can actually go through and discuss how eating carbohydrates and having these insulin loads are actually changing things changing the way the body utilizes protein for tissue repair, for um, organ maintenance, for muscle growth, all of those things. You can look at those and and say specifically why that happens. You know, why is it that you made such a huge turnaround from a carb-based diet Mm -hmm. to one without carbs and you felt so awesome and didn't have any injuries? In like six months, not a long time. Yeah, and there's very distinct reasons for that. And that's what the second book will be about is kind of those reasons uh, how protein dynamics affect all of those things and then consequently how carbs and insulin affect protein dynamics. Now, as all my stuff is structured, you know, there's benefits to eating carbs and having insulin. You just have to do it at very at the right times specifically, which, you know, that hasn't changed. It's still very important. I had something else I was going to say, but I forgot. Which is good because just, which we kind of mentioned earlier, is after our initial conversation about what the, the new books were going to gonna talk about, I was like very scared. <laughs> I was like, I can't ever eat carbs again. <laughs> right. uh, but, but it is, we do need them. It's just to the extent and, and frequency that we need them is going to be dependent. Right. So there's a time and a place. Yeah, the rate at which you can add skeletal muscle tissue is affected by how much glycogen, the percentage of glycogen that's stored in the muscle at that time. So if you're constantly on a ketogenic diet, then you do not add, you don't have the capacity to add muscle tissue in the same way. Now, those results when they do studies actually can seem a little weird 
because they get some people who add some muscle and then a lot of people don't really add much muscle at all. And the question there is why and what those studies, uh, I haven't seen any and there's very few anyway actually. But they don't look at the glycogen levels necessarily. So if somebody mm-hmm. is not, there are people who don't mobilize glycogen as efficiently as others. Uh, it usually has to do, my guess is it has to do in skeletal muscle tissue because I know this happens in the fat cells with a mutation in the catecholamine receptors. So uh, the things that would be activated by adrenaline or adrenaline, which you need those to access glycogen stores. So if those are in any way affected, you wouldn't be able to mobilize glycogen as much, which means if you have a higher percentage of glycogen stored, even on a ketogenic diet, you can still grow muscle tissue at a at a somewhat, well, you're going to grow it faster than somebody who's blowing through their glycogen stores constantly. Um, and that's why carbonite allows you to gain muscle mass so right. quickly is you had specifically optimized every part of your system to make that happen. And at only 80 calories per pound, right. you didn't even notice the caloric load that you felt tired or anything like mm-hmm. that because it, it's not very many calories. Right. It's very easy to do. And and I, that's what I wanted to talk about is because we were talking about performance and knowing when to back off. That's kind of the beauty of this. And that's what we've been missing in health. You know, when the new new health book comes out, we'll just call it Carbonite 2 for now. I'm not sure that's what it will be called. <laughs> but having these predictive models are really important because you can take somebody, you can say, okay, I know exactly how sick you are. Even though you have no symptoms that we normally look for, I know how sick you are, and I know what you're doing, so I can actually predict how long these different things are going to take. These predictive models are incredibly important for that reason because they don't exist right now. The models we have now say, well, these numbers, these blood markers that we looked at are in these ranges, so 50% of the time this happens within the next 40 years. That's shitty. Right. You know, you're not really, you're not getting helpful information. But if you actually have a predictive model, you can say, okay, we looked at this number. We're going to, we have this one number we can look at. We know that it's at this point. We know that within five years you're going to develop, you have a a 90% chance of developing liver cancer. Uh, You've got, and then we know in the next 20 years, you've got a 90% chance of developing Alzheimer's. We can literally do that with these models. And with, and in that case, you can make changes and derail things as well. You say, well, we know if you make this change now, then your risk of Alzheimer's ever is zero. It's You just won't get it. Mm-hmm. And if you make this change right now within that same five years you were going to get liver cancer, we can tell your liver will be perfectly healthy and your chance of cancer in any organ in your body has dropped to about – two percent which is hugely i mean probably it would be more like 0.02 percent if, if you want to talk about the um, statistics there so that's a lot better than you know for men right now it's 50 percent and women it's 33 percent wow so imagine i mean you just you wouldn't even worry about it anymore you'd right. be like whatever and so these same models actually give us predictive information for athletes too and right now we have 
what I call like stochastic or heuristic models, like weather models Mm -hmm. for athletes. And that's where HRV systems come in. You know, there's all these HRV systems. Um, Joel Jameson's great system. Mm -hmm. I I still recommend it to, to people. But that is, that's like the weather. That's kind of like looking at the weather forecast that says, well, everything looks good for the next 10 days. It's it's not going to rain next Friday. And then next Friday rolls around and it rains. Well, <laughs> you can't know that it's going to rain until it starts to rain because the, the models yeah. just aren't predictive. Mm-hmm. And that's what HRV is. It can't tell you that you're on the road to physical damage. Right. It can only tell you when you're almost damaged. Right, right. So you would rather just not get there. So also these predictive models can eliminate the need for all of those tools because you'll just never get to that point. And I think that is a huge leap forward for athletes and everybody else. You know, athletes won't have to worry about, well, when is the next injury happening? Right. It'll always be, well, the only time, you know, I'm not going to get an energy injury from overuse. It could happen during the sport but I'm not going to get it during training. I'm not going to get it during practice. Right. I'm not going to get it slipping off of a sidewalk when it's icy out. You know, those <laughs> things aren't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it really changes the game. And uh, no no pun intended, but <laughs> I mean, it, it it changes everything to have those predictive models. And I think it's a shame that nobody's put in the work or the effort to start this project, which, you know, I, I consider this the start of the project. Right, because it's just going to get right, get better over time, and, and Correct. the there, more data that you get. Yeah, there's some things I just don't have. I don't have a realistic amount of time to model everything, so I have to make some estimates, which you know delay the predictive power a little bit. But there's still a pretty dead on. You know, I'm gonna, I can tell somebody, okay, with this diet at this training level in three months your likelihood of busting a tendon is, you know, 87%. It's mm-hmm. just going to happen. Right. You know, expect that. Or you can downtune your training to this level, change your diet to this, and you have no risk of tendon injury in the next five, six years. You know, the, those are the kind of things we can start to do. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's why it amazes me that we can, we have models like that for every important system that there is, like we know how long your car engine is going to last. We know how long your brakes right. are going to last. We know how long your computer is going to last. Uh, you know, we know we can predict when comets are going to fly through our galaxy and if they're going to hit any planets, you know, and we can make those predictions for several years in advance. And granted, those models are much, much simpler. But with the tools available today, I, I just don't understand why this hasn't happened yet, to be honest. I was about to ask why. Do I you feel like there's other things at play that either are keeping people from wanting to look there or willing to look, look there or that they just don't know that that's available to them? I mean, you found it. Granted, you you know, you know probably right. took, again, you're, you're putting your own puzzle together, but all right. the pieces are there. Right. I think there's several things working against nutrition science right now. One is legacy. We have a legacy issue of people like um, Atwater, who was actually very scientific, but he gave us the calorie, which was the best we had. And we didn't really improve on that for a long time. 
Then we had Ansel Keys, who really brought into the nutrition world the idea of epidemiological data, Mm -hmm. uh, which, to be honest, for complex open systems, so, so for people... People are very, we exchange energy with our environment all the time. We take in food, we give off heat, we do work, we go work out. That's called an open system. Um, to try to make any predictive, to have any predictive power in an open system, you can only predict really vague things. And that's why this concept of weight is with us. Mm-hmm. And But Ansel Keys has given us that as the main tool for how we look at people and what they should eat and their diet and health. And statistics these days are super easy to learn because there's 5,000 programs out there that'll do all the statistics for you. You put in your data and it just does everything and you you don't even have to understand how statistics really work. So it's a very simple tool. So that the science education of people who are in the nutrition sciences is actually very poor. And they don't have to know the deep mathematical theory about information loss and epidemiological studies and how that information loss, the longer you look at these large systems, the information loss actually makes it so you can find a correlation between anything that you want. They don't under, they don't need to understand that. What they need to understand is if you have a system that's too big and uncontrolled and you watch it for too long, the quality of your correlations actually goes down. It doesn't go up. They're not better. They're worse. And, you know, you just can't avoid that. That's just a fact of the world. It's a fact of every component of the world from, you know, gas trapped in a box to people walking around the streets trying to lose weight. And not having any comprehension of those kind of things and still relying on these old, outmoded, shitty tools that we use for weather. I mean, come on, we we're using the same same tools and not not to knock the theorists on that side of things. I mean, the, the theory behind whether it's, you know, chaos theory or complexity theory, whatever you want to call it, some incredible discoveries have been made out of that. And our understanding of complexity and chaos has really, it's grown exponentially over the last 20 years. And we can do a lot of amazing things, but we still can't make predictions. That's the problem. And we need to be able to make predictions. And, the people working in these fields are, I mean, they're not the same type of scientist as right. theoretical physicists or mm-hmm. even experimental physicists or, oh, you know, the, the really hard sciences. And it, it, it's not a matter of intelligence or whatever. It's really a matter of how you look at the world and how you're trained to look at the world. And, and they're trained in a very specific way. I think that is the largest impediment to why this hasn't happened and then on top of it now add another layer of incompatibility and that incompatibility is that when you have conferences amongst experts in the different realms of the human body they're not they don't have crossover conferences right you don't have within their own little field yeah you have endocrinologist conferences and those might even be specific on a certain hormone or certain set of Mm -hmm. hormones and then you have microbiology conferences you have mitochondrial conferences Um, And then, you know, totally unrelated that actually brings in people who are not highly trained in any scientific matter whatsoever. Um, Then you have the sports conferences where they talk about sports nutrition. And those having all those pieces disparate like that where there's not a lot of crosstalk, 
of course, an endocrinologist is going to say, well, all of our problems are endocrinological. Or you have somebody who's an expert on atherosclerosis. They're like, well, of course, all the problems are going to be related to inflammation, which causes atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. And then you, and then because we're so confused, you start getting even more of these branched communities like ancestral health, you know, where I I won't (laughs) name her name, but there's a book out right now. It's like why your, why your genes need to eat you know, like your ancestors did, mm-hmm. which is the dumbest thing in the world. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And all of all of our information is it, it can be compelling, but there's no scientific backing to all of it, and there won't be, unfortunately, um, because it's another. It, it, it's a really nice story. Those are so you start to get these branched off communities that are happy with a story. Well, you know, I think we ate this way twenty, forty thousand years ago. And that's how we should eat now. So you should eat asparagus and tomatoes and, you know, these meats and bone broth. I can guarantee you 40,000 years ago, we probably, I mean, we probably did have some bone broth. Um, There were no tomatoes. Tomatoes didn't, if you are European descent, I've talked about this before. You haven't had tomatoes in your diet for more than 500 years. That's it. You've had wheat. We know for sure that we've had wheat and gluten in the diet for at least 20,000 years. And yet they're like, oh, don't eat that. That's not an ancestral food. But tomatoes are. (laughs) No, they're not. Tomatoes are not ancestral. You know, so they come up with these just crazy stories of cavemen running around in tomato fields and nut trees and fruit trees. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, my God, it was amazing. And that's how we should eat again. And it's, you know, it's stupid. So you have this mixing of all of these different things and then they all become talking heads on the internet and i'm not saying the internet's bad i mean it's actually democratized information so it's it's been an amazing tool mm-hmm. um so c- clearly i'm i'm concerned <laughs> about all these problems i i would like the, the first problem out of that i would like to tackle is the cross communication amongst mm-hmm. true experts yeah. and you know, I don't consider people who are experts on paleo diet and paleo theory real experts because you're not an expert about things that you make up. I mean, there's no expertise there. You just made stuff up. And of course, you're the expert of it because you made it up. Um, I, You know, I'm talking about real experts, um, the, the people who are in the labs doing the work and understanding these things at a level that is beyond compare. I mean, you can't compare with somebody who's spending their entire life on one small piece of right. the human body. Right. Oh, sorry. Kind of went off on a rant on that. There's just, <laughs> there's so many things wrong with the world of nutrition. And, right. and only now we're starting to see, there, we're starting to see some overlap between people with some serious uh, mathematical sophistication mm-hmm. start to tackle some of these models. And unf- well, it makes sense that they're able to view it in that, in a different way, that that's one of the missing pieces. Yeah. And, I am not trying to denigrate in any respect, actually, epidemiologists and the data that they collect because that is an incredibly important piece of science. It is the foundation of science. Mm -hmm. But as the foundation of science, the only thing it gives us is questions. And so all of these people need to work together. I don't, you know, epidemiologists should not be the people making recommendations, and they are. Mm. They're the only people setting the guidelines. They are the people who should never set a guideline because they are the ones who can only discover questions. 
you don't if you don't go to somebody who just asked you questions about how your car works and you don't go back to them two days later and say hey you know you had a lot of questions about how my car works can you come fix my car right like, yeah that <laughs> doesn't make sense that's true. it's completely yeah. nonsensical and that's where epidemiologists are they're at that level of asking the questions so you need to go one level deeper to the people who see those questions and are then trying to get the answers mm -hmm. And then you need to go one level deeper than that. Now they have an answer. They think they have an answer. You need to go to the people who apply these things. So the entire chain is necessary. You have the epidemiologists, uh, you have the researchers, and then you need the medical professionals and trainers. Even trainers in big box gyms could be a critical piece of this component of changing things because they're the ones who are then applying this information and getting a huge population of people. Yeah, and that information mm -hmm. goes back to the epidemiologists. There's new questions. Yep. Those questions get answered. The information goes down. And, you know, it becomes this cycle of refinement in the predictive theories that then makes everybody healthy. And, you know, and then really the only people left, hopefully, are the epidemiologists who aren't coming up with questions anymore. They're just monitoring for potential new questions. Right. Um, and... I mean, you can write a software program to do that. You, you know, so everybody in that chain should really be working to eliminate their their job. I mean, really. Mm -hmm. And I think if any one of those groups worked really hard to eliminate their need, then the entire structure would fall apart and and it would get fixed. You know, we we wouldn't be sick. We wouldn't have we wouldn't worry about you know, being a professional athlete, meaning that we'll be in a wheelchair, when, you know, 20 years later, we wouldn't have to worry about those things. I'll, I'll stop there. I could clearly, <laughs> I'm very, I'm becoming very, very interested in food policy and the politics. And because this, this is a big endeavor. This isn't about me trying to get a book out there and sell some books. This is, you know, I want to change the entire thought process around nutrition mm -hmm. And, and nutrition for everybody, not just nutrition for athletes or nutrition for bodybuilders or nutrition for my grandmother, you know, for everybody. Um, and that's going to be a massive amount of work, obviously. Obviously. I, yeah, I it probably has been this far. Yeah, I probably won't leave, live <laughs> to see the, the fruits of that labor, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile endeavor. You've been listening to Her Body on Body IOFM with your host, Alex Navarro. And if you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more information about women's health and performance. <laughs>